Good evening, everybody. My name is Tim Besley, and I'm a member of the Economics Department here at the LSE. Uh, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening's uh, Morishima lecture given by Joe Henrik. Uh, these lectures are named in honor of Michio Morishima, who is a distinguished member of the LSE uh, Economics Department and the founder of the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines here at the LSE. To reflect the breadth of Michio's interests, these lectures are given by social scientists whose interests transcend traditional disciplinary boundaries. Past Morishima lecturers have included Amartya Sen, Jim Robinson, and Thomas Piketty. It's as ever a pleasure to welcome Mrs. Yoko Morishima, Michio's wife, back to the LSE as we honor his memory in a way that I know he would have approved of. Uh, today's speaker, Joe Henrik, fits the mold for a Morishima lecturer perfectly as his work uh, spans psychology, economics, and anthropology. He's currently a professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, having moved there recently from the University of British Columbia. He's produced important work on cultural learning, cultural evolution, large-scale cooperation, religion, and the emergence of complex human institutions. And his work integrates ethnographic tools from anthropology with experimental techniques drawn from psychology and economics. It's been a great pleasure for me to get to know Joe in recent years, as we're both members of the Institutions, Organizations, and Growth Program of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. It's a group comprising a range of social scientists who are collectively tackling some fundamental questions about what makes societies and economies work. One of Joe's interests is in social learning, and I've, certain, and I've personally learned a huge amount from him, and his thinking has influenced the direction of my research and many other social scientists, which nicely tees up the main theme uh, and the ideas you're going to be hearing about from Joe this evening. We'll talk about his new book with the intriguing title, The Secret of Our Success, which I guess you might have thought was some kind of self-help book, but in fact I think is going to range over much wider issues than that. The book uh, marshals uh, insights from, uh, uh, across a wide range of Joe's interests. And Joe, uh, welcome to the LSE. The floor is yours, and we're very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Joe Henry. All right, everyone, it's uh, great to be with you. Uh, so as Tim said, I'm going to be talking about my book, The Secret of Our Success. Um, I don't think there's any self-help tips in here, but, but we'll see, maybe. So I want to begin by laying out uh, a big puzzle, although this isn't a puzzle that may have occurred to you in the past, so I've got to begin by problematizing and trying to convince you that there's a puzzle here. So long before the origins of agriculture, the first cities, and especially industrial technology, humans expanded out of Africa. So sometime around 100,000 years ago, Humans expand into Eurasia. Sometime after 60,000 years ago, they arrive in Australia. After 50,000 years ago, in Europe. And uh, after 40,000 years ago, into the Arctic. And eventually into the New World, all the way down to the tip of Tierra del Fuego, long before the origins of agriculture. Now, as humans expanded into, uh, across the globe, they entered an immense diversity of, of environments, from the arid deserts of Australia to the frozen tundra of Siberia and later Canada, um, tropical rainforests in South America and Africa. But we were able to adapt to this immense diversity of environments unlike other species. So if we look at other species who have been very ecologically dominant and successful, we see they used a different means of adaptation to their diverse environments. So if we, look at, if we take an ecologically dominant invertebrate like ants, 
very successful species. Ants did it the old-fashioned way. Over millions and millions of years, they speciated into over 14,000 different species. Meanwhile, humans are relatively genetically similar. We don't have much in the way of environment-specific genetic adaptations. And in the few cases we do, they seem to be more of a consequence than a cause of the ability to adapt to these environments. So I'm going to ask the question here at the beginning is, how did we do it? Um, and the typical answer, and the reason why this is often not a puzzle, is because people think they already know the answer. They think the answer is we have big brains, we can put those high-powered processors to work, and we can figure out the tools, the technology, the know-how to survive in these environments. That it's because of our own individual problem-solving ability that allows us to do this. And I'm, my first job here is to uh, try to challenge, to try to shake your confidence in that it's our, our raw mental abilities that, that allow us to adapt to this diversity of environments. And I want to begin by dipping into what Rob Boyd and I call the lost European explorer files. And so I have a, collected a range of these cases over the years, but I want to begin with the Burke and Wills expedition. So this is 1860 in Australia. If you're Australian, you've heard of Burke and Wills. If you're not Australian, you prob probably haven't heard of them. So this is a, a public-private partnership that starts in, in Melbourne, and uh, they want to go all the way across the co continent to the Gulf of Carpentaria and then back. And I'm going to have to, to cut this long and interesting story short. They are a group of four, and they get to the, uh, the Gulf, and they turn around to begin to head back. And they've only got a few weeks of food left at this point. They've been traveling through the outback. And things begin to go wrong. And eventually, they drag into a place called Cooper's Creek. And you can see that uh, kind of midway here. And fortunately, they had a depot of stored food there where they drag in. And they have to make a decision about whether they're going to go and continue their journey or they have to bail out of their journey because they're out of food and they're really struggling to survive. And they decide instead to bail out and follow Cooper's Creek. And they're heading toward a ranch and a police post at a place prophetically named Mount Hopeless. So they, he they head off for Mount Hopeless and they're able to follow the river. Now, as they're going along... Um, they can't catch food. They can't find food. They're eating their pack animals. And uh, um, the, earlier on, they'd actually they had a number of camels and, and horses. Uh, some of their camels had escaped, so they were down to their last camel. The last camel gets stuck in the mud and dies. And this ends up marooning them along Cooper's Creek because they can't carry enough water without the camel to cover the last stretch of desert before the ranch and the police post. So they're basically camping out along Cooper's Creek trying to survive until the rescue party can come uh, from Melbourne. And um, now, at first things are looking bad, but then they are able to contact some of the locals. And uh, the lo they are able to survive with gifts of fish. And also they see the locals are, are uh, making... Uh, some cakes from this little sporo cup called nardu, which is pictured here. And they figure, well, you know, we can make cakes, we can grind the nardu up into bread and, and, and bake it. So they seem to be, it seems like they're going to be able to survive because they're getting calories from this nardu and the occasional gifts of fish from the locals. But the problem is, is when they saw the, the locals making the nardu cakes, they didn't notice that it goes through a complex uh, processing. So it's processed in one of two, two ways. It's either ground, leached, heated, and then only eaten with a muscle shell, or it's ground, leached, and then baked in ash. And um, it turns out that nardu is toxic and indigestible unless properly processed. So these poor guys gradually poison themselves while starving to death because the nardu would just pass right through them and, and it was poisoning them because it has uh, thiamines in it, which depletes the vitamin B1 in your body and um, eventually gives you a horrible disease called beriberi. 
So Burke and Wills die, and the last member of their party still around, uh, a guy named King, wanders off into the outback and is eventually rescued and spends time with the local Yawantru tribe until he's rescued by uh, this group from, from uh, Melbourne. So he... Uh, uh, and then, so, so we know this story in part because uh, Burke, uh, Burke and Wills were writing down their jur- in journals and also because we have the story from King. So what we have here is a case where humans were trapped in an environment that humans had lived in for over 60,000 years. And they were faced with the task after having 12 months where they had their own food with them of adapting to this environment. Yet they weren't able to figure out how to survive as hunter-gatherers. Evolutionary researchers often point to humans as having this long period of surviving as hunter-gatherers, yet when faced with the job of surviving with hunter-gatherers, explorer after explorer, and this is only one case, can survive as hunter-gatherers. So no modules fired up, not even to make fire, no instincts seem to allow them to survive, and no general intelligence allowed them to make the tools and technology that you need to survive as a hunter-gatherer in this environment. So as I mentioned, they couldn't find the water necessary necessary to cross through the desert to get to their final outpost. And they couldn't identify plants that are edible to humans. They did find the nardu, although they got that idea from locals. And they didn't know that it needed to be detoxified. They couldn't uh, hunt hunt effectively because they couldn't make the traps and the spears and the fishing hooks you need to survive. So they don't seem like they're that smart. Um, One of the things they were missing was uh, these are uh, sinews that you get from a kangaroo's tail that you can use to help make your tools. And they also didn't know about this plant, this unsuspecting little plant, which uh, doesn't look like much to me, but it's called spiniflex. And it has little crystals on its leaves, which if you knock the crystals off and you mix it with kangaroo dung, but apparently not wallaby dung, and then heat it, it'll melt and it'll uh, form a powerful resin, which when hardens, it'll be as strong as cement. And Aboriginal groups use that to make tools. But Burke and Wills, of course, didn't, didn't lack that knowledge. So when we asked the question, what were Burke and Wills missing that would have allowed them to survive as hunter-gatherers, uh, these are things that any adolescent would have known. And what they're missing is this large body of cumulative know-how that local Australian Aboriginal adolescents would have gotten, that would have been bequeathed to them because they would have learned from uh, other members of their social group. Burke and Wills didn't get this. Now, this case is nice because it provides another natural experiment, which is that I, remember, I mentioned that the, the camels had escaped early in their journey. And so they were essentially faced with the same dilemma that Burke and Wills faced. They had to survive in the Australian outback, an environment that they, they didn't evolve in. But the camels succeeded. So central Australia is now filled with feral camels that are actually increasing at such a rate that Australia has to cull the, the herds of, or the, the large number of, of feral camels. Uh, this guy has a brain half the size of humans, but he's equipped with lots of specialized instincts. So he can smell water from a mile away, and he has taste cues that allow him to find foods that he can process. Camels can actually detect protein, so they focus on high-protein plants, and they have powerful digestion, which allows them to detoxify plants, plants that would poison humans and make them sick. So they come fully equipped to survive in this environment that that humans can't. All right, so that should begin to shake our instincts that it's really the sure sheer brain power, that we can't, when when asked to survive as hunter-gatherers, we don't do well. Now, another way to come at this question is to look at the comparison, comparisons between human cognition and that of other apes. So um, this is work, this, uh, this graph here is work done by Mike Tomasello and Esther Herman at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. And what Esther and Mike did was they gave a battery of 18 cognitive tests to three different species. So you have uh, orangutans, 
chimpanzees, and then humans. Now, for humans, they use two-and-a-half-year-old children. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain why you might want to use two-and-a-half-year-old children. But So they tested the cognitive abilities of these different species uh, across these different tests. And you can break the, cognitive, the battery of cognitive tests down into um, measures of space, so your ability to uh, use space to solve problems. In all these problems, when you solve it, you get a food reward. And, and all, all three species like snacks. Uh, so, they're, so they're motivated. There's proper incentives. And uh, you can see that humans do about as well as the, the chimpanzees and the orangs do a little bit worse. In the case of quantity, so tracking objects as they move from covered buckets to covered buckets and seeing how well they do with that, the three species are pretty similar. The chimps actually edge out the humans. And in causality, and causality includes tool-using tasks, um, the humans and chimps are pretty similar. In the actual tool-using tasks, the chimps did a lot better than the two-and-a-half-year-olds. So this is all pretty similar across these domains of cognition. And where the two-and-a-half-year-olds really clean up is the domain of social learning. So when you get to observe a demonstrator, and by copying them, you can solve a problem better. Uh, it, apparently, in, in designing these tasks, they had a problem because all the tasks they used, the kids would all be at ceiling because they're really good copiers, and the apes would be at floor and never copy. So it took them a while to find a task where they could get some variation, and uh, they just didn't have floor and ceiling effects. So this suggests that there's something, at least making, based on these comparisons, we're, we're, we're superior in a particular way to these other apes. Now, in my book, I point to a couple other interesting lines of experiment. So um, there's now work comparing the working memory, which is taken to be a fundamental aspect of intelligence, your ability to, to keep things in working memory. So if you take an IQ test, one of the things the person might do is give you a set of numbers, and you have to remember them and repeat them back to the person backwards. Uh, apes turn out to do, chimpanzees turn out to do pretty well on this task. At least one ape is better than the undergraduates, uh, and all the apes are always faster than the undergraduates. My favorite task is actually one on strategic thinking. So they play uh, a game from economics. Uh, it's called the matching pennies game. And in this game, two players are competing, and one wants to match, and the other wants to mismatch. So you have to pick heads or tails. And when you get two heads, the, the matcher gets some points, or some, some food in this case. And when you mismatch, um, the other guy gets some. So it's a zero-sum game. And so there's an optimal strategy that you can predict from, from game theory. You should randomize around a certain probability depending on the payoffs. Uh, and the chimps zero right in on the, on the Nash prediction. The humans are slower. They zero in, and then they systematically miss the Nash. So they actually perform poorly compared to the chimps. So all this suggests that you know, we don't seem to be very good Machiavellians in this zero-sum game. We seem to have these cognitive deficits compared to other apes. So maybe we're not as smart as we think we are, at least in, in the ways we typically think we're smart. Now, an important caveat here is that um, humans will continue to get much smarter. So one of the funny things about this task is that we're using two-and-a-half-year-old children. And if we put adult humans in there, they would clean up the floor with the chimps. So they'd be better. They'd be at ceiling, basically, on all the tasks. So maybe it's not really fair. But it's worth keeping in mind that um, humans will keep getting better at these tasks over the first two decades of their lives, which is why the adult humans would clean up the floor. The apes are about as good as they're going to get at age five, so, and that's when they wean, so basically when they're infants to juveniles, and then they're flat in terms of their cognitive abilities. So something is allowing the humans to continue with this upward trajectory while the apes remain flat. Now, I want to begin to show you where I'm going with that idea, but also to... Um, uh, uh, anticipate a, an obvious concern, which is that, of course, we know we're smarter than apes, so how do these experiments fit in with this kind of obvious fact? 
So part of what makes us smart are that we culturally acquire a bunch of pre-built solutions, a bunch of tools for thinking and uh, solutions to problems. So it's in part the software and not the hardware that allows us to seem so smart. To, to, it's why adults can defeat the apes in all these tasks. So just to give you a simple example, take tools. So things like screws, springs, levers, pulleys. These were invented at some points in human history, and not all groups invented them. So one of my favorite examples is the wheel. So the wheel's only invented on one continent, Eurasia. It's not invented in the New World, except for some wheels on Mayan toys. It's not invented in Australia, not in New Guinea, not in Oceania. So it's invented, and it's rel invented relatively late in human history. So if you look at Far Side cartoons, Gary Larson's cartoons, you might think that Neanderthals were some ancient human species was experimenting with wheels. But really, it's you know complex societies maybe uh, six to 8,000 years ago, you begin to get the first wheels, and then it's immediately deployed on vehicles and for pottery and in a bunch of different ways. And of course, all societies have these things called dogs, which are, are useful for, for, for wheeled carts. So they have the basic ingredients to put carts to use. Another interesting case is elastically stored energy. So bows, bows and arrows pop up in lots of places, but they also disappear, and they're never invented in Australia. Bows are invented in New Guinea, but their fletching is never invented. So these are concepts which are easy to redeploy in lots of domains. Once you get the idea, you can store energy uh, in elastic, something like, store, like bows store energy in wood, um, and then relatively easy to re reapply to other domains like traps, for example, often use elastic energy. It's also true that compressed air was never invented in Australia. And so Australia is the smallest and most isolated of the continents. So once you have those, you can redeploy them. Another cognitive tool, all of you, by virtue of uh, speaking English, have inherited a number system that allows you to count without bound. So you can differentiate 37 from 36. But lots of small-scale societies like the Machiganga, who I worked with in Peru, count one, two, three, many. And so they don't have number words or the ability to differentiate 37 from 36. Um, and then if you look and you begin to collate all the data that anthropologists have produced from diverse societies, you find that lots of societies count the various numbers. So this is one group in New Guinea who counts to 27. And other groups count to 12. There's groups that count to 28, 23, all these different numbers. And they're almost always body part counting systems. So you got your 10 fingers that, and the numbering system often starts with names for the fingers that then get converted into numbers and then they get ordered. And then you start to use elbows and eyes and ears and you can keep going up the system. And then some groups have figured out ways to do it with one level of recursion. So you do it twice. And then that allows one group to count up to 64. Um, but in your system, you get this whole download of this powerful numbering system for free, and it allows you to solve problems that people without this system can't. So numerical cognition. Stripped of these numbering systems, when psychologists have studied populations that don't have these, their numerical abilities look like other apes. They're, they have a, a, a digital system up to about three, and then they use an analog system where they basically, you know, that's a bigger pile than that pile. So they're using sort of physical size. Spatial cognition. By virtue of speaking English, you get three different uh, spatial reference systems. You get uh, one that's relatively hard to learn. Kids learn it late, left from right. You also have an absolute, north, south, east, and west. And English has a relative. So I can say, uh, she's to the left of the door. And I'm drawing a line between myself and the door and uh, assigning based on, uh, based on that relative coordinate system. Some groups just have an absolute. So they do everything by north, north south, east, and west. Lots of groups also have a local absolute system. So for Amazonian groups will often have a river-based coordinate system. So you may be miles and miles inland from the river, but the group will say, go upstream. 
and that means walk parallel to the river, which is two miles away, um, and, and you know against the against the current or with the current, depending on whether they say upstream or downstream, or they might say go towards the river, which means go towards the river. Um, but everything is done with that. There's no left and right. But because we have these tools, we can do things with them that you can't do without them. And then finally, all languages are, are not uh, equally equipped. This is a common thing you might learn in anthropology class, not true, um, that all languages are equal. So um, English, of course, has about 400,000 words, but that's kind of an unfair comparison because uh, the average speaker, well, the average American undergraduate, has between 40 and 60,000 words in their vocabulary. The average professor has about 73,000 words in their vocabulary. But if you look at the entire dictionary for lots of small-scale societies, they have between 3,000 and 5,000 words. So there's this order of magnitude difference between the entire size of the lexicon in some languages and the amount of num- the number of words that uh, people in complex societies have in their heads. So again, um, this is an accretion of cultural know-how, knowledge, mental tools over time. So it's an interesting thought experiment to say, well, how smart would be to take away the numbers? Okay, now take away all the concepts, or take away 80% of the concepts in language. Um, take away all the types of tools, wheels, levers, pulleys. How good would we be able at solving problems if we, if we took away all that cultural accumulation? Okay, so uh, the case I'm making is that uh, if we want to understand the secret of our success, it's not our intelligence, so we have to look at something else. And the hint is in those, those Australian Aborigines, those adolescents who knew how to do all the things that Burke and Wills, how to make tools and find water, knew how to do. And it's because they have an accumulative body of know-how. So how and why is it that humans can accumulate this body of know-how that has all this useful information in it? The key to this accumulation is going to turn out to be two things. High-fidelity cultural transmission, so the ability to look at other members of your group and learn what they do, acquire their goals and their strategies and the details of their motor movements and all the things that allows you to replicate those things. And then sociality, being able to access a large number of people and learn from all of them. And then this aggregates over time to produce cumulative culture. And I'm going to be be saying more about that in a minute. This gives rise to something called the collective brain. And it means that humans don't, we think as groups. And it's the percolation, the interaction of individuals over time that allows us to do all the fancy stuff that we do that allows Australian Aborigines to survive so well in the environment that Burke and Will struggle in. But interesting, when you build mathematical models of this, uh, of this process, one of the robust predictions that comes from these models is that larger and more interconnected groups can generate faster adaptive processes. They can adapt to their environments faster, and they can become even more adapted. They can produce fancier tools, larger bodies of know-how. So human adaptation depends on the size and interconnectedness of the groups. Technology, sophistication, depends on the size and interconnectedness of groups. I'll also be making the case that if groups should suddenly shrink, you'll actually have a decline. You'll lose information and know-how over time. All right, and then the final point I'll make is that I'll be arguing that this um, goes deep into human evolutionary history, that it's actually this process of cumulative cultural evolution that explains a lot of how we became humans and how, why we're so different from other species, that it's been the primary driver in human genetic evolution. Okay, now I want to give you a sense of how we can think about cultural evolution, because this is one of the mysteries. When I, when I first began to interact with economists, some of the folks I was interacting with had this idea that culture is important, but they didn't know what to do with it. There was just this thing that seemed to affect behavior, and they weren't sure what to do with it. Psychologists are, are, are similar. Um, now, 
the move here is, I think, intellectually important because in the history of uh, the application of evolutionary thinking to human behavior, there's often been evolutionary and biological explanations on one hand, and then explanations based on culture and learning on the other hand. And this move that I'm about to describe is it's going to take the power of natural selection and the idea that we're products of evolution and turn it on the question of learning. How and was it, how did we become adaptive learners? And what kinds of predictions do we make about how we learn, who we learn from, how we integrate information? So it's going to um, make culture and learning a product of natural selection acting on genes. So... Um, one way to get at this, uh, and this is what we do with mathematical models, but you can do it verbally too, is by just ask the question, how should natural selection have shaped our brains and our learning abilities so that learners can most effectively ex extract ideas, beliefs, values, and behavior from their social milieu, from the communities they live in? Who in their communities are likely to possess the most valuable adaptive information? And so one way to kind of enter this is to imagine you're a, a, a youth or um, a migrant in, in a new community, and you want to figure out what to, what to eat. Well, you could do what the camel presumably had to do, which is go around your environment and sample different foods. And when you taste foods that taste good and they seem, they seem to fit your taste cues, then eat a lot of that. Um, or, or you could do cultural learning, which is to say look around the community, pick out the healthiest, most successful members of the community and eat whatever they eat. And that allows you to zoom into, it's probably not the best diet, but it's a better diet than you could get otherwise. And then, of course, you can always make small adjustments once you've jumped to that place. So that's how to solve the, the diet problem via cultural evolution. Of course, this is, a, this is you know, disciplined in, in formal models, which allow you to make more precise predictions about that. So I'm going to be spending some time in a minute on these model-based cues on figuring out who in your social milieu you should learn from. But I just want to mention that this cross-cuts with what we call content-based mechanisms. So the idea that people should be interested in certain kinds of information. So humans seem particularly interested in information about food, fire, artifacts. When we learn about those things, we bring certain assumptions to learning about those things. We're also keenly interested in norms. What are the rules? What, what, what rules do I have to follow? What kinds of things would I do that would give me a bad reputation that would cause others to be angry with me? We seem to have some uh, learning, some structured learning for social groups. So um, I'll talk more about that. And then just to give one example, we did this research on memory in kids in, in Fiji and in the U.S. And what we found in both places is that if you teach kids information about where an animal lives, um, what it eats, and whether it's dangerous, they learn the danger information in one shot. The other information they can acquire after repeated exposures, but they're keying in on certain kinds of information, and in this case, danger. So that's showing a bias to, to remember some stuff. Okay, um, now I was mentioning the, the model-based selective learning. So this suggests we should cue in and pay attention to certain individuals. So the idea is that you should cue in on those who are more successful or more competent. They might have cues of success or prestige. Um, health can be a good cue, age and self-similarity. So just to differentiate some of these, success is different from skill and competence. So if you're trying to become a hunter and you're a young young aspiring hunter in a community, um, you could look at whether, a, whether a, a great hunter in the community's arrows tend to hit their target, right? That would give you a measure of their skill. But you might also know who at the end of the day tends to bring home the game, who tends to bring home the prey. And that's a measure of success because it's aggregating lots of information. A measure of prestige would be who do other people think is the best hunter and who are they paying attention to and, and learning from? Um, health seems to be a good cue if someone's unhealthy, they may, might be doing something wrong which would cause that. And also um, positive affect could be an important cue. Positive affect predicts uh, longer life and, and health. Um, age 
uh, can be a good cue. So um, this seems to be important in potentially two ways. So one is if younger children pay attention to older children, then uh, that that allows them to scaffold themselves up. So the, here the idea is is that if you're a young child, you could you could be attracted to learning from say the most successful person in your community, which might be you know 38, 42, some, some age like that, or um, but th- their skills are probably too hard for you to learn. In order to scaffold yourself up to increasingly complex skills, you focus on those individuals who are a little bit older than you. So if you're a five-year-old, you focus on the best seven-year-old. If you're a seven-year-old, you focus on the best nine-year-old. And this way you can ratchet yourself up. So this predicts that children ought to pay attention to uh, somewhat older children. But another thing is also the case that not everyone gets to be old. So uh, natural selection is picking out certain people as the aging process goes on and not everyone's getting to be old. So especially in small-scale societies where you have high mortality rates, the, the most mature members of the community have gone through a selective filter, and that actually contains information. It means they, at least on average in expectation, they have done things which allowed them to get old. So you should preferentially weight those and, and learn from older members of the community. Self-similarity is a cue which lets you pick out individuals who are most likely to have information that's useful to you later in life. So, for example, a lot of paleoanthropologists think the division of labor between males and females is relatively old in the human lineage. This means that males should be inclined to copy males and females to copy females because you need to learn the skills, strategies, whatnot that's going to be useful to you later in life. Uh, So that that makes a prediction about biases and, and who people learn from. A uh, similar thing about dialect and ethnicity, if you're most likely going to be interacting uh, with those who share your norms, that's something you want to do, you should preferentially learn from those who share your dialect. It allows you to create a coordination between your norms and the people you're likely to interact with. Okay, so the, and then the big picture here is that learners are actually integrating all these cues and using them to learn adaptively. Now, just summarizing what's now a large body of literature, um, in the last 10 years there's been a flourishing of studies on imitation in children providing evidence for for many of these. So there's tons of evidence that children and adults, and even infants in some cases, use cues of skill, competence, and reliability. Success also seems to be, so people pay attention to payoffs and preferentially learn from those with higher payoffs. Um, Lots of evidence in children that they pay attention to older children. Um, In small-scale societies, there's at least one study showing that people preferentially learn from older members of the community. A little bit on health and affect, uh, not much research there. Uh, let's see, ethnicity. So it's clear that ethnicity matters in terms of dialect and language. So children, even before they can speak, preferentially learn food choices and object manipulation from models who share their dialect. So they're keying in on, or share mom's dialect, actually, because they don't speak yet. Uh, and, and also it works if they're older, they'll preferentially learn from models who share their dialect. And uh, prestige. So my collaborators and I have done research on prestige. And here the idea is, is that you're using social learning Uh, prestige cues to figure out uh, who in your social milieu is worth learning from. And you're basically trying to figure out who other people think are worthy of learning from. So in our experiments, we show that kids preferentially, or we show kids a video in which uh, uh, another kid is using a tool in a certain way. And there are either other individuals watching that child or or looking other directions. And we show that, that the more watched models are more likely to be imitated. And so you're queuing in on who other people are paying attention to and using that to copy fruit preference, how to, how to manipulate artifacts, and other aspects of culture. We also know that these things are important across an immense variety of domains. So food preferences and mate choice are important, technological adoptions, language, 
um, economic strategies. One of my favorites is suicide. So there's a number of different lines of evidence to suggest uh, that people will copy um, suicide from high-status prestigious models. One is when celebrities commit suicide, there's a rash of subsequent suicides in which people use the same method. And so sometimes celebrities will use some exotic method, like throwing themselves in front of a train. And then there's a rash of people who throw themselves in front of trains afterwards. And when you try to predict who's going to do that, um, age matters, as you would expect, uh, ethnicity matters, and uh, sex matters. So if, if, a, if a male Latino commits suicide, Jesse Prince Jr., um, then you get a rash of Hispanic males uh, committing suicide using that method. Uh, also, there's now evidence that uh, people preferentially learn standards of fairness and willingness to punish via cultural transmission. Okay, now all this evidence put together, infants from, uh, uh, evidence from infants, evidence from other societies, uh, we've done a lot of work on this in Fiji, suggests that these biases are reliably developing, early, automatic, and unconscious. So in lots of psychology experiments, the subjects don't even know they're learning from another model. It just, it just happens unconsciously. Okay, now then you got to, now you have to move up. So this is something about individual psychology. You want to say, well, what happens when you have a bunch of people in a community and they're all learning from each other? So we, we, we take our mechanisms of our uh, psychological mechanisms and we ask what happens when people get together and learn from each other. And one of the things that can, this can produce are what I'm calling cultural adaptations. So these are things like fa fancier tools, technologies, diet, so what kinds of foods you eat, um, how to process foods like processing nardu, as I described with Burke and Wills, ritual practices, large bodies of eco ecological knowledge that help you find food, medical knowledge, and communicative systems. So language is produced by this process. Uh, iterated over generations, as people preferentially learn from more successful, healthier members of their community, these things emerge over generations. Okay, now, when you've, once you've created this, this approach and this, this kind of theory, you can explain why the size and interconnectedness of a population matters, because it turns out when populations are bigger, this process can just go faster. It also explains why it takes humans a while to adapt to new environments, because they're not, they're, their adaptations and their, their know-how about these environments doesn't spring forth from the individual cognition. It's generated through the interaction of minds over, over generations. And interesting, I'm not going to talk about this in, in this uh, talk, but this can also, sometimes this process, which is evolved because it's adaptive, um, can go wildly astray and create extravagant maladaptations. Okay, and the bigger picture here is that this whole thing is going to feed back and affect human genetic evolution. Okay, so let me uh, make a point here about cultural adaptations. I, I noted that this occurs outside conscious awareness. It can be conscious, but it doesn't have to, and it's often... Uh, unconscious, and I'll give you some examples in a second. Now, it can occur without actors understanding the underlying causality or the costs and benefits, but it will produce things that appear rational or adaptive. So you can tell a post hoc rationality story or a post hoc adaptive story, but it wasn't because individuals thought through it and weighed the costs and benefits. It's generated by the, by the cultural process. Um, in a lot of cases, I think that the, our causal understandings of things are actually backed out after the fact. And one example that people might be familiar with is the steam engine. So the steam engine gets produced mostly by old-fashioned tinkering and playing around. But once you have a steam engine, it gives you a window on the world of thermodynamics. And you can figure out new thermodynamic principles by looking at a functioning steam engine. It's a window that you wouldn't have had unless you first produced a steam engine. So the causal models back out. Now, that's not to say that they, don't, they, don't, they then don't go on to um, improve things, but 
the, the backing out, I think, is underappreciated sometimes. And this is even true of, of things in the modern world, uh, like medicines. So a lot of times we know a medicine works because it's, done, it's gone through its trials, but we don't know why it works. And medical researchers spend a lot of time trying to back out the chemistry and, and biochemistry of why this chemical makes you feel better. Um, I put boomerangs up because I know that uh, uh, aerodin- uh, aerospace engineers are still trying to figure out exactly why boomerangs do what they do. Now, sometimes the causal explanations that different human populations have are wrong, uh, but yet the, the adaptation works. And sometimes it's crucial that individuals don't understand the causal explanation. So I won't say much about this in this talk, although I'd be happy to take questions. But rituals actually can be a thing that could binds communities together by jointly participating in a ritual. But the people themselves think they're doing it for some god or some supernatural agent, um, when actually it's the fact that it binds them together that has led to the spread of the ritual. So that's a case where you probably don't want everybody to know what's, what's under the hood. Now, let me give you this example of spices. So this is a, uh, an example that people will be familiar with. So um, uh, two biologists, Paul Sherman and Jennifer Billings, analyzed the global use of spices. So spices are strange because other animals don't use them. They don't have any caloric or nutritional content. And they found that it was highly correlated with climate. So in hotter places, people use more spices. And then they uh, uh, looked through the published literature on the effectiveness of different spices and the chemicals in spices. And it turned out that hotter climates use more spices and more of the spices that are good at killing pathogens. So it seems like the spicing practices are for reducing the pathogens in meat. And you can make a bunch of other predictions that it should be mostly on meat, that this, the spices should be used in certain ways that don't take away their efficacy. So parsley, for example, is always used um, without cooking it, because if you cook parsley, you remove its antimicrobial properties. Um, whereas onions can be cooked or not cooked. You still get the antimicrobial effect, so onions are used both ways. And so you can begin to say things about the recipes, and so they analyzed thousands of recipes and, and, and showed these patterns. So spices appear to be a cultural adaptation that operates unconsciously. The people themselves don't understand. They just learn when they grow up in an environment, they like certain tastes. And I like that I have pictures of chili peppers here because chili peppers are innately aversive to humans. Um, Non-human primates won't eat them, and mothers are often cautioned from eating chili peppers because the capsicum can get into the capsaicin can get into the breast milk, and then it'll it'll make the infant not want to take the breast. Uh, But our cultural learning seems to be powerful enough that we can actually reinterpret what's uh, what is known to be a direct pain signal. in order to turn that into pleasure. So humans can turn pain into pleasure through cultural learning. And what's interesting um, about the, the chili pepper case is that chili peppers actually evolved this chemical just to keep, precisely to keep mammals like us away. Because chili peppers, from the natural selection point of view, want to be eaten by birds, because the birds will disperse the seeds better. They want to keep slow-moving mammals like us away. So this, this is the method, but uh, humans can get past it. Another fun example is nixtamalization. So uh, throughout pre-Columbian North America, populations that were dense and relied entirely on corn would, would in their cornmeal mix in non-food substances, so ash from the fire or burnt seashells. And this seemed like a useless practice to the Europeans who took corn over to, the, to Europe. Um, but it turned out that this has a chemical reaction on the corn. And if you live on corn and you don't do this, you get a horrible disease called pellagra because you end up being deficient in niacin because you don't get the niacin that's chemically bound up in the corn. But if you put an alkali in the cornmeal, you crack open the otherwise unavailable niacin, and then you don't end up being niacin deficient, you don't get pellagra. 
Now, we might think, well, people can figure this out. They certain, so we have a natural experiment. The corn goes to Europe. It becomes the staple in many European populations, and waves of pellagra begin hitting poor people in Europe. People assume it's a pathogen. It's not a pathogen. They clean the corn. They do all these things. It takes them decades before they get the, the, the correct theory. So it was a hard-to-figure-out hard thing. Okay, so here are the ideas that genetic evolution shapes human psychology to make us powerful and requisite cultural learners. We need this body of information to survive, even as hunter-gatherers in the environments we evolved. Now, these cultural learning capacities give rise to all kinds of interesting cultural products. So tools, uh, rituals, languages, social norms, and institutions. Now, when humans grow up in worlds structured by, by these things, it actually changes our psychology. So people across diverse societies are actually psychologically different. They have different memories, they have different attention patterns, they have different parts of their brain. And this is due to ontogenetic, developmental adaptation to environments that are differently structured by these cultural practices. And I'm going to give you some examples in a second. Now, once you have a cultural psychology, you're interested, you think about the world in a particular way, or um, uh, you're more individualistic, this can then feed back and affect the types of institutions you build, the types of religions you like, so you get this feedback process. I'm going to be talking more about this bigger feedback process, which is the whole thing feeds back to shape our genetic evolution. And I'll talk more about that in a second. Okay, now I want to make a key point, and this is a point that if you read popular books on evolution, you might have run across this point. So many a famous evolutionary psychologist, I can think of four offhand, five, um, has said something like this. A natural selection is the only known causal process capable of producing complex functional organic mechanisms. So I'm not picking on David Buss and his colleagues here because, like I said, I can produce lots of quotes like this. Now, I think I've just given you a case that this is, in fact, in fact not true. So cultural evolution, which is unconscious, we don't know that's happening, nobody knows about the spices, that the spices evolved, is a complex adaptation to environmental problems. In the case of spices, it's the problem of pathogens in meat. In the case of nixtamalization, it's the problem of not getting enough niacin when you have a, a, a diet dependent on corn. So I've given you, we saw the Nardu case, alkali in the corn. And finally, let me, let me mention writing systems. So this is about organic structure. I mentioned that brains are different. We now know that when we compare the brains of people who learn to read with non-literate people, there's a whole section of the left hemisphere which is specialized for doing reading. And the corpus callosi of literate people are more connected. So information, you have more uh, whole brain activation when you hear uh, speech. Now, this is, a, this, is a, or this is an adaptation for, for learning to read, but it ends up having a, an effect on how you process speech because your, 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 the information highway that connects the two hemispheres of your brain gets thicker as a consequence. It also has a negative effect on your face processing ability. So in non-literate populations, you have face processing sections in both hemispheres. In literate people, it's, it's in the right hemisphere because it gets crowded out by the reading machinery that's in the left hemisphere. So for a long time, neuroscientists were only studying literate people, and they thought, oh, well, uh, face processing is right hemisphere biased. No, face processing in literate people is right hemisphere biased. In normal people, it's um, uh, both on both sides. Okay, so that just shows how, how cultural evolution can change our brains. I want to skip that point. Now, I want to make this point about, uh, uh, about natural selection, uh, um, about cultural evolution being able to produce complexity, just by giving you this comparison here. So um, on the top here, we have something produced by natural selection acting on genes. And it's just to show you that natural selection can produce 
a tool, a tool, or in this case, a house. So this is the village weaver, and the village weaver builds this nest. Now, he knows how to build this nest innately, so he doesn't have to see any other birds make it. He, he always uses these certain knots. He follows this procedure, and this is a nice adaptation here. So predator birds can't get through this nest to get at the eggs, which are cradled here, because they can't go up through this narrow hole here, and this whole thing can actually fall out of the tree, and the eggs will survive. So it seems built to help protect the village weaver's eggs from predator birds. Um, but he, he doesn't learn it. There's no learn, or uh, at least doesn't culturally learn it. Here, this is an Inuit snow house, which has a lot of com complex parts, and it's an engineering marvel. So it, thermodynamically, you're actually using a cold substance, snow, to, to keep you warm inside. It's got this tunnel here, which acts as a heat trap. But it only ha acts as a heat trap if you orient it in a certain way to the wind. Uh, and it's heated. Of course, there's no wood in the Arctic, so you have to render the seal fat from this guy to make this lamp in order to heat that. Uh, there's a bunch of other interesting engineers, but the, the Inuit themselves can't describe the engineering practices to you. They just know we have this procedure, and we follow the procedure, and we have goals and sub-goals. So this is produced by cultural evolution, and that's produced by genetic evolution, two kinds of houses. Okay, uh, let me make a point here about the fact that we can also have cognitive adaptations. I've already said a little bit about this, but um, I've mentioned the numbers in the spatial reference systems, and uh, the way to think about these is that cultural evolution is building things that fit innate aspects of our psychology. So a fun example is something called the mental abacus. And uh, if you've ever seen, there's some great uh, YouTube videos about this, which gets you to see it. So in India, for example, lots of young kids are trained in the mental abacus. And you learn the mental abacus first by, uh, well, so when you do learn it, you have extraordinary computational ability. So you can give them a, a list of five-digit numbers, seven, eight, ten digits long, and they'll, they'll do a bunch of calculations and tell you what the answer is, and it'll be right. They can, they can beat, uh, sometimes there's competitions with people using calculators, and they can sometimes beat them, or actually often beat them. Now, this begins by training on the real abacus. And the real abacus is a physical object which itself evolved over time to exploit certain aspects of our visual system, our object recognition, and our, the way we group things together, the way we group threes and fours and things like that. And so this is a cultural technology which evolved to our, our visuospatial system, which you can then get trained on and put aside. And then when the kids do these, this amazing mental abacus, the, you know, their hands actually move like this and they look up into space. Uh, because they're, they're imagining the actual abacus, and then they're able to do these impressive calculations. Uh, so it's a, it's a mental ability that is culturally evolved, but it fits in with our, our uh, aspects of our innate abilities and, and uh, extends them. I'm actually going to skip the language point. Okay, now let me go to the collective brain now. Um, this is the idea that... Uh, larger, more interconnected populations can produce fancier tools and technology. So I want to start with some empirical data. So this is uh, Michelle Klein and Robert Boyd, and they wanted a place where they could get control over the size of populations. So they went to the Pacific, and they recorded the, the food-getting or the fish-getting technology, so subsistence technology, for different islands, 10 different islands in Oceania. So this is the pre-Columbian technology that, that people were using to get fish. Now, uh, so what, what this plot shows is they measure the number of tools these guys use, these different islands use to, to get uh, 
to do fishing, and the complexity of the tools. So they basically counted the parts of each tool to get a measure of the complexity. And this is the population size. So what these plots show is that larger, note this is a log scale, larger populations have more tools, and those tools are on average more complex. This is a strong relationship. You can try to introduce lots of ecological variables, and it, it doesn't hold. So um, powerful relationship, larger, larger islands have fancier tools and more tools. Now, as an important note, you'll often see paleoanthropologists suggesting that if they dig up some fancy tools, they'll say those people are smarter uh, than people with less fancy tools. But these populations are all a relatively recent human expansion called the Austronesian expansion. So these are uh, genetically indistinguishable populations. It's the synergy and the size of the population that explains why that group has fancier tools than that group. So it means you can infer the, the mental abilities from the complexity of the tools they make because it's really produced by, this, by the collective brain. Okay, now I want to introduce uh, another case. So that's a bit of evidence showing this relationship betwe between the, the population size and the uh, tool complexity. I give these four pictures to my undergraduates, and I say w these tools were, were made at different times in human history, so some in the Paleolithic, some more recently. Which ones were made, made when? Now, the, ones, the most recent ones, they typically pick one of these top two. So these were made 35,000 years ago in Europe, something called the Upper Paleolithic. And these were actually made around 1700 in Australia. They typically um, point to one of these two as the oldest tools. Now, these are really old. These are the oldest tools. So these are Oldowan tools, 1.8 million years ago. or That's 1.8 million years ago. These are Mousterian tools associated with a, a human ancestor called Neanderthals. And then finally, the question is, what are these tools? Well, it turns, out, it turns out that these tools are contemporaneous. So this is in Australia, and this is just across the Bass Strait of the island of Tasmania to the south of Australia. And so th these tools are, just by visual, they seem to be much simpler, and they look more like uh, Neanderthal Mousterian tools. So how could we explain this? Well, first, let me tell you a little bit about uh, the Tasmanian. So this is... Um, uh, the Europeans show up there about 1642. Uh, it's an island of hunter-gatherers. Population sizes are hard to come by, but maybe about 4,000 people, about two-thirds the size of Ireland. And the simplest technology that the Europeans had ran across at this point. So you can see they're one-piece wallaby skins. Now, not only do they have the simplest technology, but um, the puzzle seems to deepen as you dig down and do the archaeology of Tasmania. So it looks as if they either, they either uh, lost or never developed bone tools, fishing equipment, cold-weather clothing, hafted tools, nets, fishing spears, barb spears, spear throwers, durable watercraft, and boomerangs. So here you can see a Tasmanian watercraft. Across the Bass Strait, people are, are using uh, bark canoes and uh, sewn, sewn boats. Uh, they're using these drinking vessels. So, and they're dressing in these one-piece wallaby skins and drinking from skulls. So, um, numbers vary, but maybe about uh, 24 items or a couple dozen items. Um, that actually excludes a few things, but, but a small toolkit compared to other groups. And across the Bass Strait, they're very complex material uh, technology. So, multi-pronged fishing spears, spear throwers, boomerangs, mounted ozes. So, uh, that's these things. And lots of different traps. So, you have your different fish traps here. Um, I mentioned the sewn bar canoes and the ground edge axes. Uh, so the question is, is why would they lose or not develop these, these fancy technologies? And um, 
the case that I, I made w- way back was that uh, it had to do with uh, climate, actually. That, um, so you have the last glacial maximum about 18,000 years ago. The Earth starts warming, and then the seas start rising. Sometime between 12,000 and 8,000 years ago, Tasmania becomes an island, and it becomes cut off from the rest of mainland Australia. So where you had, before you had a kind of supercontinent, all, with all these populations interconnecting and sharing know-how, suddenly uh, Tasmania gets shrunken down to just this one small island. And then they, they lose bone tools, they lose fishing. By inference, we think they, can, they lose halfing tools. Um, the details of the, of the Tasmanian archaeological record are a bit murky, but... Um, you can make this case. And uh, meanwhile, things continue to get better and better in mainland Australia. There's still an interconnected continent, so the they cumulative cultural evolution continues there. Okay. So this is the idea that a sudden shrinkage in the size of the collective brain resulted in a loss. Uh, this is just basically making the same point. You can actually calculate uh, a critical size of population where if you suddenly lose a population and fall below that, you'll enter a, a regime where you'll lose tools and technology until you re- reach a new level. So your population size and interconnectedness affects how fancy your tools can get. Now, that's just a, a field case, and it's meant to illustrate the potential importance of this stuff to the real world. But Michael Muthu Krishnan and I, who's right here, there he is, um, we decided to run an experiment to see if we could replicate this experiment, this effect in the lab. So what we did is we created micro-societies, and Michael did all the real work here, um, in which we had generations of laboratory participants. So this is generation one, generation two, generation three, in two conditions. And in this condition, you can only learn from one previous guy. So it's cultural transmission one to one to one. So kind of whisper down the lane. In this condition, this guy could learn from anybody here. All these guys could learn from anyone. So this is a measure of interconnectedness. These guys are much more interconnected than, the, than these guys. And we ran two experiments. First, we started with naive guys who didn't know anything about a difficult task that they had to learn about. And then later, we started with experts. And I'll get to that one in a second. So in this task, the learners had to figure out how to make this object. This is their target thing they're trying to create. So the best canoe maker in the village dies. You just have his canoe. Now reproduce it. Uh, that's kind of this, this technique. Um, and so they, had a, they were using a complex image editing program that's notoriously hard to use. They had a time limit for trying to reproduce it. They're paid for their own performance, how similar whatever they produce is to this, and also their students' performance, again, comparison to that. Access to either one teacher or no teachers. And um, after the task, so the time's up, they can then write information down, which is passed to their student. So tips on, on how to do that. So the, the next generation gets their product, something that hopefully looks like this, but usually doesn't, um, a write-up about it, and then the target image. And the, getting the target image and the product allows them to assess how good they are. All right, so this is uh, 10 generations and the uh, mean skill rating. So this is how skillful they were. You can see when you can only learn from one teacher, these guys did really well in round one, but it just bounces around and you don't get any accumulation of skill. So these last guys are no more skilled on average than these first guys. If you look at this red line, that's the five, five models. So there, these guys, they don't do so well in the first round, in the second round, but then things kick in and they get moving. So in the end, oh, these guys are much more skilled at using this image editing program than these, just cause, due to the interconnectedness. Uh, well, it looks like the, some translation here has, has uh, changed my figure, but you can still get the idea. So um, this, is each, this is the data. This is round one. And this is round 10, and this is each generation. 
This is when you only have one model, and this is when you have the five models you can look at. And you can see these guys had a good round one, but then it doesn't really get passed down, and they just kind of bounce around. These guys had a bad round one, not such a good round two, but then this guy gets it, and then all these guys get it, and then things start storming. So that the, so that the worst person in generation 10 is better than the best person over here. And this is just due to sociality. Um, I feel like there's some creative slide movement. Uh, okay, so that's one experiment, and that shows how you can generate cumulative cultural evolution with interconnectedness. This is another experiment, the one I mentioned, where first we trained everyone up as experts. So you can see they're very skilled. They're up here at 80 or 90%. And then we let them pass the information down across generations. And when they can only transmit to one person, you get this rapid drop in skill, and you reach an equilibrium here. Whereas here, you get a, a drop in skill, but not as strong, and you hit a higher equilibrium. So these guys are almost twice as skilled at the end as, as these guys. And that's just due to the, the interconnectedness. Okay. And so we know this isn't differences in intelligence or incentives among the group. It's just the, just the effect of interconnectedness. Okay. So, Tim, how's my time? You're doing fine. Ten minutes more? Ten minutes, okay. All right, let me um, express along here. I've apparently long-winded or something. Um, it's so all these ideas apply to language as well. So uh, language also adapts to environments. Uh, cultural evolution has variously produced sign languages and visual languages and hum languages. Languages vary according to climate. But it's also the case that larger speaker communities have more words and larger populations gain words more quickly and lose words less quickly. Um, they have more phonemes and more efficient informational packing. So just to show you a couple of studies, this is the size of the speaker population and the number of phonemes. And there's a reliable relationship across different databases and different studies showing that larger populations use more different phonemes. So across the world's languages, the number of phonemes varies from 11 to 140. English, depending on what dialect you speak, has about 36. Um, and more phonemes tend to mean shorter words, so potential for more information packing. Michael, who I mentioned before, we did this analysis where we, we looked at how optimized languages were for their information packing efficiency across European languages. And you get the same sort of thing, that uh, larger speaker communities have more informational packing. You can say more with fewer words. That's why when you look at a book that's written in German and one that looks at English, the English is a small book and the German's a big book. Okay. I'm going to skip that point. Well, maybe I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, I'll just make this point because it's kind of fun. So uh, my colleagues and I have been studying uh, Westerners in comparison to other populations around the world, and we find they're often unusual. So I have this acronym, WEIRD, it stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And it's meant to express how unusual Westerners are. Uh, and one of the things, a lot of people study English, and they think they're learning about language in general, right? They'll make generalizations about language. But if you were to use what we know about the languages of small-scale societies to infer the kinds of languages that humans must have spoken over our evolutionary history, the first thing you'd say is they have uh, about three to 5,000 words, so English has way too many words. The language would be tonal. So they would use the sounds within the word, the intonations, and in saying ma, ma, ma. Um, that would be four, three different words. Yeah, it's, it's Mandarin. Um, uh, and they, um, uh, they would also be more, they wouldn't be morphologically simple. So they'd have these big long verbs that they pack together, uh, whereas English is morphologically simple, 
And it also has high information packing. They wouldn't have high information packing. So it's really very much unlike the languages that humans have spoken over our evolutionary history. Okay, so now I want to think about this very briefly in terms of um, long-term evolution. So I've tried to convince you that humans have this cumulative cultural system, that we can produce all these fancy adaptations to our environments, even when we don't ourselves understand them. Now I'm going to argue that this has affected our genetic evolution over long periods of time. So the, the key point here in human evolutionary history, I call it the Rubicon, that's when culture first begins to accumulate. It's when one generation gets the knowledge of the previous generation with sufficient fidelity that it can build on it. So there's a little bit of an aggregation across time. Now, this was probably a herky-jerky process at the beginning, and there was probably a lot of backtracking and, and whatnot. But once you begin to accumulate, you can produce things like uh, tools, fire, cooking, and tracking techniques, and then, you, then the pressure increases uh, on people to be better learners. So brains are selected genetically to be larger and better at acquiring, organizing, and storing information. But then, of course, once you're better at acquiring, storing, and organizing cultural information, then cultural evolution can produce more of it. So you get some food, pra uh, food processing and tracking and shelter and clothing. Now there's even more pressure on you as a learner because all the good stuff is out there in the minds of others, and you'll never figure out all that stuff that, that's now accumulated in, in the world. So you need even bigger brains. And in humans, we know that this has hit the stops. So the human heads, heads are already hard to get out of the birth canal. It has to shrink down and uh, then pop out, and it's all crinkly and stuff when it first comes out. I have three kids. Um, <laughs> and it's clearly an, an enterprise, and other animals don't suffer, suffer this birth. And the reason is because is you know, natural selection is trying to make that head bigger, but it can't because it's got basic uh, constraints of the primate body plan. But meanwhile, cultural evolution can keep zooming along. And in my book, I make the case that uh, the division of labor between males and females actually began as a division of information. We can work together to rear this child. You become an expert in one thing, I'll become an expert in another thing. And then from there, of course, human societies have continued to finally tune up that division of information, and we call it a division of labor. Okay. Now, this not only has driven this sort of this ability for cultural learning, but it's had specific effects. So... Uh, these are the products of cultural evolution, and then these are, these are things that it affected genetically. So let me give you the, the, probably the best studied example. So if you look at human, our human digestive system, so the size of our teeth, the size of our gapes, stomach size, and small intestine, or no, colon size. Uh, they're too small and kind of wimpy compared for a primate of our diet, for a primate of our body size and who eats what we eat. But they make good sense if you think of us as a cooking and fire-using species. Because when we cook food or we food process or we chop it up, we're actually pre-digesting our food. We're doing work that our digestive tract would normally have to do. And so it appears that in human evolutionary history, going back a million years ago probably, this is work by my colleague Richard Rangham, um, humans invented fire. It's culturally transmitted. If I took you all out into the forest and just said, make fire, you, no module fires up. You don't, you don't have an innate instinct that will allow you to make fire. Uh, you have to learn it, but once you learn it, you can cook food pre-digested, and then you can end up with smaller colons and smaller stomachs. And this, this frees up a lot of energy for brain building because you're, re you're reducing the amount of energy that's normally taken up in your digestive tissue. Okay, um, another area that a lot of cognitive scientists have done research on is we seem to have specializations for thinking about plants and animals. So I'll just give you one example. So if you learn something about one tiger, he hunts at night, you immediately generalize that, not just to that tiger whose name might be Leo, but you would generalize it to all tigers. And you might be willing to also generalize it to lions uh, and then other related species so that you get that sort of 
It's called category-based induction for free. So we seem to have this system that's useful for using all this knowledge about uh, plants and animals. This one's worth going into in a little bit more depth. So Dan Lieberman, uh, another of my colleagues at Harvard, has argued that humans are adapted for long-distance running. So if you compare our bodies to non-human primates, we have these springy arches that store energy. And we have nuchal ligaments in our heads that allow our heads to turn independent of our bodies. And these don't make sense unless we're adapted for long-distance running. So Dan thinks that we, I mean, we, we know this from hunter-gatherers, that we can actually run down prey. We can chase an antelope until it collapses. Now, crucial to this system is our, our powerful sweating system. So compared to other primates, we have way more acrine sweat glands. In many ways, we're the sweaty primate. And those sweat glands allow us to pour out cooling water all over our bodies so we can keep running for long distances. But if you analyze this system, this running set of running adaptations, as an engineer, you'll say, well, it's a great system. It seems well-designed, but it's got a flaw. There's no water tank. Where's all that water going to come from for all that sweating? Well, then when you watch actual hunter-gatherers, it turns out they solved that problem culturally. So they use water containers, and they use a body of cultural knowledge about where to find water-bearing plants or where to find water uh, in their environment. And of course, th this uh, persistence hunting also requires tracking knowledge, which is culturally transmitted among humans. So this is a gene culture coevolutionary package. These don't work unless you have cultural adaptations that have to do with tracking uh, and, and water, whether it's finding water or, or transporting it. There are also um, uh, a few other areas of psychology, and I'm just going to mention uh, this one. So once you let humans learn rules for behavior and you let them learn rules for judging others so we can culturally acquire not only what we're supposed to do but what you should do or what others are supposed to do, that leads to social norms. These are sort of self-reinforcing. Nobody can deviate without getting, getting some kind of sanction, bad reputation, or punishment. This led humans to genetically evolve a norm psychology. So when we put little kids in a situation, when they learn a rule, uh, they see a common behavioral, they'll immediately infer a rule. And there's lots of interesting psychology showing how quickly kids learn rules and are willing to punish. They usually punish puppets, um, but it, it makes the point. So we have this expectation that social rules exist. And then finally, I'll just mention this one. Uh, Cultural evolution produces groups that vary in dialect and dress, and those groups also tend to share norms because these things are passed down the same cultural evolutionary channels. So this predicts that humans should preferentially learn norms from those who share their dialect or other ethnic markers and preferentially interact with those. And lots of research in young children and adults suggests that that, that, that piece of psychology seems to be widespread. Okay. Um, now, this, uh, this idea of the cultural brain hypothesis allows us to explain a bunch of oddities in, in human biology. So one is this rate of which our brains expand. So this is time, and you can see they started off getting bigger slowly, and then they seem to get really fast. So you need an autocatalytic evolutionary process. And the process I described where the, the culture gets complex, and then the brains need to get bigger, and then the culture gets even more complex, is the kind of uh, evolutionary process that could cause that. Um, there's a couple of others, although I don't think they deal with these other features as well. Um, I explained the, the way it counts for our running anatomy and our, our strange digestive systems. Um, I talked about the cognitive differences between species. So why do, those, why do the children seem so similar to chimps in every domain except social learning? It also explains this fun phenomenon of overimitation. Compared to chimps, Kids are obsessive over imitators. They'll keep copying things even when they're copying things that seem dumb or not obvious or seem to violate the way this, you would think this device would work. 
We also have this strange life history. So our infant periods are shrunk compared to other primates. Our childhoods are long, and we've added a period of adolescence. So the idea is we stretch out the childhood in order to add more of this cultural information to build the cultural know-how into our, into our brains. And our brains are very plastic during this period. Okay, and then um, oh. menopause. So the idea of uh, menopause, humans have this unusually, well, uh, we have menopause, and then there's this long post-reproductive period where women live for a long time after they can't produce any more children. This is a puzzling evolutionary phenomenon, but the ideas I've laid out here suggest that this is for transmitting information. So what are grandmothers good for? They know a lot. They've had a long life. They've had a lot of chance for both individual and social learning, and they can have a chance to pass that <clears throat> on to the grandkids. So I call it the information grandparent hypothesis. Okay. You can ask questions about that at the end if that wasn't uh, clear. Okay. So let me just zoom out. So that's the, that's the whole book in a nutshell. Um, and, but I just want to say, so the, the last chapter of my book is called what kind, uh, uh, A New Kind of Animal. And so it's really about saying that we're a different kind of animal than a lot of evolutionary ideas, a lot of evolutionary thinking has previously assumed. And I think this has important implications, um, not just for, for the science, for thinking about humans, but also for things like uh, institutional and policy design. So lots of institutional and policy design implicitly or, well, usually implicitly, um, has assumptions about human nature, about what kind of creature we are, about the way we'll respond uh, to incentives. And I've had the, the privilege, actually, for the last nine years of being both in a psychology department and in an economics department. It's like I'm an anthropologist and I get to experience two exotic, exotic societies. Uh, and they actually have quite different standards. They have different norms about how to, how to deal with speakers and all kinds of fun things. Um, and uh, so... I mean, so economics, for example, uh, focuses on inf- individuals as cost-benefit analysis, that they're trying to maximize the, uh, maximize the benefits and minimize the costs. And typically, they assume that they're doing this with some set of preferences. So there's something people want, and the, the economics tells us about how they're going to tr- make these trade-offs among these things. Um, but these, these preferences, these things that people want, are often assumed to be given from outside. And one of the things that a lot of this research shows is that people acquire their preferences from other members of their social group. So this means that preferences have to be part of the story. You need to embed the, the cost-benefit decision-making, the kind of economics models, within a larger framework that allows beliefs and um, uh, preferences to, to co-evolve and then influence individual decision-making. So I guess why I would just like to say that, you know, there's, there's many things about economics and psychology which are important, but I think they've become more powerful if we can seat them within an evolutionary, a broad evolutionary framework that doesn't implicitly assume things about human nature, but explicitly theorizes what kind of animal army so we can interrogate those assumptions and, and try to fix them up so we, we get the right theory of human nature. Okay. And so, and of course, my, my case has been that we're a cultural species, a product of culture-driven uh, genetic evolution. Thanks. Thanks, thanks very much, Joe. So we have, we have a few minutes for questions. Joe, Joe is, I think, going to chair his own questions from the podium. So if you could raise your hand, and then Joe is going to... Yes. Probably take them in batches, or are you going to take them individually? It's up to you. I'm happy to do individual. Um, On the uh, interface between genetic evolution and cultural evolution, there'll be a problem of freeloaders. Uh, So there's a genetic uh, incentive to 
to uh, discriminate against freeloaders who are taking advantage of your better position, whereas in cultural evolution that may be much less important. So what I'm going to suggest is that our long childhoods where we grew up in family groups are actually also a mechanism against freeloading because we, we offer our experience to our genetic relatives. Yeah, um, well, so we, we worry, uh, in, in the kind of work I do, we worry a lot about the, the problem of freeloaders, um, both on the genetic side and the cultural evolutionary side. One of the things that um, we seem to have some uh, adaptations, genetic adaptations, I think, that allow us to discriminate. Uh, so when you have cultural transmission, you could have a prestigious individual who wants to pass on bad information. And... Um, that would be easy once you have something like language, but if you, if you make deeds count, if people have to do costly things that they would only do if they actually believed what they said, then that's a way of kind of creating a bit of an immune system to being exploited um, uh, the way that this, this guy would be a fr- uh, freeloader in, in the sense that you're thinking of. Now, the, thing, the problem is in these communities that you're talking about, which is where I do research, uh, there's everybody seems to get the benefit of the older members of the group. So the, you might think so. In order for the evolutionary model to work, at least the at least the genetic offspring or the grandchildren need to get the benefits. But there seems to be this spillover effect of the whole community gets the benefit. So that could just be a side product, and it could evolve just because the, some relatives are getting the benefit. But the degree to which you can spread knowledge among the community, everyone else is going to uh, get more innovation and, and uh, faster cumulative cultural evolution. Yes. Um, I, uh, the model is an explanatory model that sort of uh, seems to be driven by the, the sorry, a, a model, explanatory model that seems to be driven by the, the benefits that accrue. Um, but uh, I work in public health, and we also seem to be incredibly good, both individually and culturally, learning things that are bad for us. Um, and I just wondered uh, how that sort of fits in, because we are you know, the same mechanism seems to cause obesity and diabetes and early death and poverty. Um, so it, it seems to be just looking at one side of things there. Well, no, so absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I gave my case of suicide. It's hard to make the adaptive case for, for suicide. So the, w- the way I would approach public health problems, and my, my wife actually works in public health, is to say, look, we have these adaptive learning mechanisms, so can we understand how and why they go awry? So something we have worked on is this tendency to copy prestigious people. So in our society, we are able to elevate celebrities through media and stuff to very high places of prestige, which gives everybody the cues of who's paying attention to them. And then when they make decisions, all kinds of different decisions, that can then uh, spread widely. So I guess you told me that Angelina Jolie is a professor here now. Well, so she's a famous case where she wrote, where she wrote an op-ed uh, in the New York Times about uh, her decision to get a double mastectomy. And that caused... Um, clinics in the UK and New Zealand and Australia, the English-speaking world, to flood with people seeking genetic testing uh, because they read Angelina's. uh, uh, And another interesting fact here is that reading Angelina's op-ed did not increase their knowledge, their underlying knowledge. So there was a survey that tested them on the knowledge. It just caused them to go seek the testing. Uh, So that's a case where if you you understand how people attend to prestige, you can exploit it for, for public health benefits. Well, so in your examples, there's, there's a bunch of things that are uh, mixed in there. So, for example, people's tendency to eat sugar and fat, uh, that I think is what I call the content bias. 
So because humans evolved in environments that were short of those, it's easy to convince us. It's easy to acquire the habits of eating lots of sugar and fat. Um, and the way to defeat that would be to use these other kinds of biases that are more about who you're paying attention to. Uh, so yes, yeah, so it's possible to build in these, these different elements. Um, did you have a question? with Alaska, oh, sorry, talking about Wyoming in the states, which is the least populated area. And before there was the internet, and because people couldn't get broadcast television because they were living on isolated ranches, what I, I went there to do historical research, and what I found was that there was no, they didn't talk. They didn't talk to each other. If there was a problem, people just stared at a spot in the middle of the circle and, and just sort of stood there scuffing their cowboy boots, but nobody talked about anything. And so what you're saying sort of fits, but uh-huh. with, with what's going on sort of politically all over, and the name that keeps, of course, coming into my brain is Donald Trump. You know, how do you fit the you know, sort of human evolution? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, what, what is going on? I mean, I, 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 I mean people think... So, I mean, I, I spoke to my old insurance agent a few weeks ago in Wyoming, and I was stunned that this nice guy who helped put up shop, you know, shelves in my bedroom closet years ago seemed like a nice human being, was actually an admirer of Donald Trump and saying, but he's a successful businessman, so this sort of... Right? Could you put Donald Trump in an So I haven't, I haven't written a paper on Donald Trump yet. Um, <laughs> but if I was going to begin to turn the wheels on that, I would point to celebrity culture. So here's a guy who lots of people pay attention to. They believe he's successful and prestigious, although apparently inherited $200 million, which is a good place to start. Um, and uh, also the, the like-me bias. So I think people hear him speak, and a lot of Americans say, yeah, he's like me. Uh, and we do have that, I mentioned why we'd have that bias, right? So he's rich and he's kind of like me in these other ways. So, you know, that's how I would start to write my paper, but I, I don't really know what the answer is. Yes? Uh, I was wondering if you, would, uh, if you think about humans as a different type of animal, would then uh, characterize different civilizations as different cultural species? I mean, there's a, uh, if you, you could use the term species like that in the sense that there's a package of things that go together to, to allow the complex society to operate, um, different division of labor, different set of religious beliefs. Um, uh, I, I don't have any need to, to, to use the biological analogy. Uh, but there. it also implies uh, less sort of like a, a fungibility between, uh, between humans in those different... It's like, you know, the different types of birds are different types of birds. And uh, no, the red, the, the, the black bird, bird. Yeah, although the species concept turns out to be a bit fuzzy when you look at closer. There are kind of situations where the lo- all the locals can interbreed, but the one, one, you know, if you're going around a lake or something like that. Um, so even the species concept isn't really a species. Okay, if, if you yeah. just wait now until the mic comes. So if you could pass the mic back to the row behind you, then we can. Otherwise, we sometimes can't hear the questions. Hi. Um, you talk a lot about us learning from our elders and the generations above us and passing knowledge down. Um, But given the speed that technology is advancing, do you not think that that will begin to reverse because some of the lower generations can actually process more of these tools and this information and pass it back up the chain? Yes, absolutely. Uh, And that's actually in the book, uh, Chapter (laughs) 8. 
So one of the puzzles that we've, in the the work on uh, prestige is that in lots of small-scale societies, as long as you're not cognitively declining too dramatically, the oldest members of the community are the highest status people. But I feel like in modern society, the age of the highest status people seems to be going down and down. And that makes good sense once you realize the rate of cultural change. So if things are changing slowly, the world faced by the oldest members in your community is pretty similar to the world you're facing. Whereas in the modern world, the world faced by the 80 and 90-year-olds is quite a different world, or that they faced when they were young, is quite a different world than people are facing today. So you need to shorten your time horizons because of that, the, the rate of cultural change. So. Yes, in the back. So just wait, oh. the mic's coming. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just I'm, making sure this. Uh, thank you. Fascinating indeed. Um, <clears throat> you tend to dismiss the, uh, the intelligence uh, uh, in explain, explaining the um, uh, human success vis-à-vis the, its um, evolutionary cousins, um, but but very fact, very things that you say have been uh, have given us an edge, uh, given us uh, means to uh, go forward. Uh, they themselves like language is is uh, is what you call related to intelligence. So. Um, when you say that intelligence is not important, uh, one wonders. Uh, maybe the case is this, that the intelligence has given us an edge, but our collaborating, collaborative living, our culture, has, given us, has multiplied that edge many, many times over. And that's why we see that we are so far ahead from our evolutionary cousins. Could that be the explanation? That the culture has, give, has multiplied that edge of intelligence that we had? Well, um Let's see. So um, you mentioned language. So the thing is, in in the case I made, and it kind of flew by, so you might not have caught it, but uh, I really want to make the case that language is itself a product of cumulative cultural evolution. Um, You know, that's why larger societies have more words and they have more phonemes and they've... um, so, so in, in a sense, it's, I'm trying to explain where you get language in the first place. Now, once we have language, that gives us more concepts and more tools and makes us smarter. So when we, we give people intelligence tests, they often end up being at least containing a vocabulary test, which is basically how good are you learning, doing cultural learning. Um, and, I mean, so in some sense, that's why I did that uh, uh, thought experiment where if you take away the number, you take away all the cultural products, so your knowledge about pulleys, your language... Um, uh, numbers, all that kind of stuff, how smart would we be? And yeah, we might still be smarter than, than our, our primate cousins, but it's not clear that we'd be very much smarter. Probably time for one more question. Okay. So you're picking the, the winner there. I was just wondering if there's any research on if this uh, also happens with polymaths uh, like da Vinci or, or Newton, and, and also people on the autistic spectrum who particularly fascinated with patterns rather than people? Um, well, I'm not sure. Maybe say more. Um, I guess it's kind, kind of... I mean, say with da Vinci. I mean, did he uh, really learn from studying other people or was he sitting alone in his room mm. spotting patterns in, in isolation? You know, where and people like that who have made you know some of the biggest uh, yes. leaps in knowledge in okay, human yes. society. Okay, I got it now. Yeah. So, uh, great question, and I, of course, I can't speak to individ- uh, specific individuals. But one of the things you see is that great inventors are often uh, well socially connected. Some of their great ideas often come from reading distant bits of work that give them an idea. 
Um, and there's also this phenomena of double, triple, quadruple invention. So, uh, you know, Newton invents calculus, but so did Leibniz around the same time. Darwin gets natural selection, but so did Wallace, and actually it turns out a bunch of other people. So it's often we don't invent things, and then there comes a point in history, and there's a whole bunch of people that could possibly invent something. So the times pick the person, not the person, the times, or some, some kind of interesting-sounding thing like that. Okay, Joe, I think uh, we have to draw things to a close, but, but I really should thank you for a wonderful lecture. I think we've all talked about social learning. We've all been here had the social experience and learned a huge amount from, from this. And there's opportunities to go by. If you haven't got the book already, the book is on sale outside and, and you'll get your personally signed copy from Joe if you go by it now because he's going to sign it. Uh, uh, so anyway, thank you very much, Joe. It's been fantastic. Yeah.